Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture reading this morning is from John 10, 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Good morning, church. Some of you out there may be saying, who is that guy? Others of you may be saying, I think I recognize that guy. And some of you may be saying, oh, that's Matt. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Scholl. I had the privilege of serving here at Zionsville United Methodist Church back in 2000 to 2004. So it's been a few minutes since then. Um, Last time I checked, I mentioned to Jim Gentry this morning, it's almost been exactly 18 years to the day since I last preached here. I left Zionsville in 2004, would have preached my last sermon toward the end of June uh, before I went to serve for two years at uh, Mooresville United Methodist Church. And Mooresville is where I first met Dave and Jamelin, actually. You may know Jamelin's from Mooresville. And so we've been colleagues in ministry since then and friends and kept up a connection over the years. And um, Dave invited me to be here today uh, while he's been away for a couple of weeks. So it's a privilege to be back sort of home and to be with you all today and to help Dave out as well. So just by a quick way of catching up, for those of you that do know me, you might want to know what's the rest of the story. What, 18 years, that's a long time. What have you been doing? Where have you gone? Went to Mooresville for two years. Then I went back to school for a year um, down at Asbury in Kentucky. I was on campus there uh, earning my doctorate. And then we moved from Kentucky, and I went to serve in the West Ohio Conference uh, in Beaver Creek, Ohio, an eastern suburb of the city of Dayton. It was about 15 miles from my folks, so it was close. Um, I had a wonderful church there, lots of great Air Force folks there, and um, served there for four years. And then I went to serve um, Anderson Hills United Methodist Church, which is in Cincinnati, southeast side of Cincinnati. Congregation not a lot different than Zionsville. I went there to be uh, executive pastor, so sort of all the staff reported up to me. I was in charge of the overall ministry of the church, and it was a role I kind of had done here, and so a great experience. Um, But... um, you may a little bit more about my life here. I met my wife, Rebecca, while I was serving here. That's her on the left. Um, we dated for a couple of years. Um, we ended up being married. And we left here. We were pregnant with our first child. So that's Elena. You see in the middle. She's now 17, going on 21. Um, and uh, so she, we were pregnant with her when we left. And then my son, Ian, was born while I lived in, we lived in Kentucky. Okay, so, well, that one year 
we left Mooresville pregnant again. And um, so the two children, this is us on vacation in Alaska a couple weeks ago. We were one of the lucky 20%, they say, that gets to see uh, Denali. The weather was beautiful. So I'd encourage you to go back. Well, if you count up the timeline and you count my wife moving into my house when we got married, that meant um, she'd moved into my house. We moved to Mooresville. Two years there, we moved to Kentucky. One year there, we moved to Ohio. Four years there, and we moved to Cincinnati. And you know how the Methodist church does. They like us to move around. They asked me to move again, and so I had to say, "Uh uh-uh, time out. That's too much moving for my young family. So officially, for the last 10 years, I've been on leave of absence for the Methodist church, still finding ways to be in ministry. But we, we ended up living in Cincinnati for five years, and then five years ago, moved back to Columbus, Indiana. My wife's from Seymour, so we're not far from her family there in Columbus. And so I've been um, filled in at a little white country church um, for about four months. It was a thrill, 40 people every Sunday. Um, they were without a pastor for a while, uh, involved in Bible studies in the community, and I get to fill in for my friends in ministry here in Indiana from time to time. So it's a pleasure to be back with you and a pleasure to um, share and worship with you this morning. Well, let me pray and then we'll get to the message. So God, uh, we thank you for the privilege of coming together as your people. We thank you for the work you have done in our lives, the work you're doing even now, and the work you've yet to do. And we pray that these few moments you would meet us here through, through your word, through your presence, through your Holy Spirit, through the elements we will share together in a few minutes. Speak to us, change us, challenge us, correct us. Most of all, meet us here because we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oz Guinness, a speaker and author, went through a 30 years career as a public speaker, and the number one issue that he said came up more than any other throughout his speaking career is people wanted to know how to find purpose in life. He says this, he said, we desire as people to make a difference. We long to leave a legacy. We yearn, as Ralph Waldo Emerson's put it, to leave the world a bit better. Our passion is to know that we are fulfilling the purpose for which we are here on earth. The scripture that we just heard read is um, from the beginning of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 10, 1 through 10 is typically, well, in the NIV it has the heading, the shepherd and his flock. So often we focus on Jesus the good shepherd and we as sheep and those kind of things. But today I want to focus on just the last part of the scripture that we read a minute ago where Jesus says, I have come that they, the sheep, that is us, may have life and have life to the full. What did Jesus mean when he said that? What did he mean when he said that we may have life and have it to the full? What do you picture when you picture life to the full? probably some version of the American dream, right? You've got a certain house and certain cars in the driveway. You're able to do certain things like travel, take vacation time, all those kind of things. Is that what Jesus meant by life to the full? Certainly he came to give us eternal life, 
as John 3.16 says. But if that's all he meant, why didn't he just say here, the thief comes to kill and destroy, I've come that they may have eternal life. Well, he must have meant something different when he said, I want you to have life and have it to the full. Well, if we're going to understand Jesus, we have to first remember he wasn't talking to 21st century Americans. When he speaks in the gospel, he's speaking primarily to first century Jewish people. Three groups of Jews, in fact. First and most of all, to the disciples. Secondly, he's speaking to the religious leaders, often challenging them or responding to some challenge where they have come to him. And sometimes, like the Sermon on the Mount, he's just speaking to the people, right? But it's mostly Jews in the first century. Well, here, Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees. In chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man born blind, and the Pharisees investigate this healing. They want to know, how did he do this? And by the end of the chapter, Jesus has flipped the conversation around, and he's now talking about spiritual blindness. So in John chapter 9, verse 40, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, are we blind too? And Jesus answers by talking about a shepherd who knows his sheep and thieves and robbers who come to to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus, the shepherd, comes that the sheep may have life and have it to the full. And what's Jesus talking about? When Jesus started talking about a shepherd who knows his sheep, the first century Jewish mind would have uh, clicked in to their, what they've heard in, uh, what do you call it? Where did the Jews go to church? Synagogue, thank you, yeah. Where they've been going to synagogue all their life and hearing the Torah read. They would have recognized that Jesus was referring back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, there's lots of words on the screen. You notice I'm using glasses. I don't expect you to get your glasses out and read all that. I just want to show it to you, okay? Jesus is talking to the Jews, and what they've learned in synagogue would have clicked in with what they'd heard from Ezekiel chapter 34, which is also a retelling of Leviticus chapter 26. So when Jesus talks about the good shepherd, here's what they would have seen. Now, I want to show you some of the similarities here. You can jot down those verses. Again, Ezekiel 34, Leviticus 26. Go home and look them up yourself. But notice these phrases that would have clicked in their minds. In Ezekiel 34, it says, I I will banish the wild beasts from the land. In Leviticus, it says, I will remove the harmful beasts from the land. In Ezekiel, it says, I will send down showers in their season. Leviticus says, I will give you rains in their season. Both of them say, the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Ezekiel says, they shall be secure in their land. Leviticus says, you shall dwell in the land securely. They say, none shall make them afraid. None shall make you afraid. They shall know that I, am the Lord, I, the Lord their God, am with them. I am the Lord your God. They are my people. You shall be my people. And finally, if you do it side by side, you end up, you see the parallels between Ezekiel 34, Leviticus 26, and so the first century Jewish hearers would have heard this when they said, heard Jesus talking about a good shepherd who brings life that's truly life, that brings life and wants you to have abundant life. A first century Jewish mind would have heard Jesus saying, I've come that you might have things like security. I've come that you might have provision, that you might have peace, 
and that you might have my presence. If that is life to the full, if that's the kind of life Jesus is talking about, I want to ask the question today, do you have it? Do you have the abundant life Jesus wants to give you? We live down in Columbus now, and outside of town, my in-laws have a little cabin on a private lake they've had for almost 40 years. So my family, no matter where we've lived, we've gone out there. Last weekend, we were out there enjoying the, you know, the heat wave and kind of between bouts on the boat and tubing. Uh, my kids pulled out the game Clue. Do you guys remember the game Clue? This is the cover of the version I first remember. It's gone through lots of changes over the years, lots of iterations, lots of variations. But Clue, at its most basic form, you remember how it is, right? You unfold the board and you get this map of a building and there's like eight rooms around the side and kind of home base in the middle. I forget what they call it. And there's shortcuts and all that cool stuff that you like as a kid. And you have three kinds of cards, right? There's people cards, uh, um, Colonel Mustard was always my favorite. I thought that was kind of a cool name. And there's Professor Plum, and um, I think they've even changed up some of the names, right? But you know some of the names from the version that you're familiar with. So you mix up the people cards, and you put one of the people cards in the envelope, and that's the person who done it, right? And you got to figure out who that is. And then the same thing with weapons. There are weapons. Uh, there's a rope and a revolver and a wrench and a candlestick and some other things. And you mix those up and one of those things goes in the envelope and gets hidden, right? And then you do the rooms too. There's a card for each room. You mix them up, hide one of, the way, one of them away. And the, the, the goal of the game is to figure out what are the three things that are in the envelope that nobody's seen. And you move around the rooms and you do it by deduction and you draw cards and you ask other people, is it this person? And they say, no, because I know this, and that kind of thing. You remember the game, right? Well, it got me thinking that part of discovering what life and life abundantly looks like is like the game Clue. And there's three parts to it. The first part is our identity. It's the people cards in Clue. When I was in college, I joined a fraternity, and part of um, joining the fraternity, we had to interview, interview all of the brothers that were already in the fraternity. And we had to ask them a standard set of questions. You know, what's your hometown? What's your major? What's your full name? We had to memorize all that. And then we had to ask three personal questions. And one of my personal questions was, what makes you unique? What makes you unique? Kind of an interesting question. I don't know if you've ever given it much thought, but it was interesting in particular because we had two brothers that were identical twins. And so when I asked them, what makes you unique? You know, the usual stuff, well, I did this and that. A lot of it was the same for them. Well, there are answers to what makes you unique, right? Things like your fingerprints, the experiences you've had. Even if I was an identical twin, my twin standing next to me, he's seeing things somewhat differently from a different angle, different experiences, feeling things in his body differently. There are, there are things that make us different. Part of our job as children of God is to figure out who God made you to be. I was a psych major in undergrad. I enjoyed talking with Kim a little bit about our experience in counseling, training. I've got training. She's got experience. Um, but part of that is you learn to do all these personal personality tests and inventories and what kind of thing do you use for this. Um, uh, I've taken lots of those tests. I went through... Um, 
two psych evaluations to become a pastor, and um, somehow I squeaked by. But, um, but part of companies do this too. Um, maybe taking the strength finder. I saw outside Dave's office today, I think it said his strength finder, and it kind of describes his personality, what he's good at, things that he's maybe not so good at, or how to work with him, all those kind of things. Companies want to know that too. They want to know who is this person, what do they bring to the table, how do they fit into the team, and how can we use that together? That's your identity. Pastor and theologian Henry Nowen put it this way, When he described your identity, he says, first and foremost, you are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. If you're willing to try something with me, I want to ask you to close your eyes for a few minutes. Now and put together this wonderful description pulled from lots of different places in Scripture, and I want to speak that to you so that maybe you can hear God's voice saying, you are my beloved now. This is what God says to each and every one of us. I've called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. I've molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I've carved you in the palms of my hand and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I've counted every hair on your head and guided your every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. Wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, as I know you as my own. You belong to me. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will ever separate us. Okay, you can open your eyes. Maybe give your neighbor a nudge if they've dozed off. But God says your identity is you are his beloved. That's who you are in God's eyes. That's your identity. Well, remember what the second card is, right? The first one is the person. The second one is the weapon. We don't talk about weapons in church a lot. Scripture does talk about it in a few places. 2 Corinthians says the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Uh, Ephesians talks about taking up the helmet of salvation and the spirit of truth, which is the word of God, some of those kind of things. But I want to kind of flip it today instead of talking about weapons and talk about the tools or gifts that God has given you for ministry. God has given us certain gifts. As a pastor, I've been teaching um, SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E, most of my career. I think I started it even before I came here to Zionsville. And maybe you've been through classes. I think this started with Rick Warren in uh, California. But just a reminder that God has given each of you, each of us, a particular shape. The first one of those is an S for your spiritual gifts. 
when we place our faith in Christ, when we become a believer, when we become a Christian and start following Jesus, God gives each of us a spiritual gift for the building up of the kingdom. Some people he gives more gifts, multiple gifts, but everybody gets at least one gift. And there are several places where gifts are enumerated in scripture. There's things like wisdom, there's things like um, speaking in tongues, there's things like um, helps, um, all different kinds of gifts. And each of us, each of you has been given a gift. That's what S stands for. Second thing is God has given each of us a heart or passions for certain things. My wife is a a physical therapist, and often people say, oh, can you help me with my knees or my back or those kind of things? I sometimes ask her, and she gives me the hardest time of anybody, like you might expect. But part of the reason she gives me a hard time is she's a pediatric physical therapist. So she deals with kids, zero through really 18, technically up to 21 maybe, but her sweet spot is these little kids. She works in the preschool, a public preschool with kids with disabilities now. Just a few weeks ago, she was helping with our, our city rec program for kids with disabilities. She was sitting on the bench at the softball field, surrounded by kids with all different kinds of needs, and she was just glowing because her passion is little kids with these physical needs. If it was senior citizens, if it was the adults, all right, you know, my age, those kind of things, she couldn't care less about us. Sorry, guys. But bring your little kids to her. and She's got a heart for them. God's given you a heart for something too. Teachers is another good example. Some people love teaching children. Some people love, bless their hearts, teaching teenagers. Some people love teaching middle-aged adults or working with seniors. But God gives us passions for certain things. Third thing he gives us is abilities. Each of us has natural gifts and abilities. Talents. These can be also developed over time. Uh, I was giving Frank a hard time um, in the first service. He asked me if I could sing. And I said, you don't want me to sing, believe me. <laughs> no matter how hard I practice, no matter how, I can improve, but it will still not be good, okay? When people are working outside their area of giftedness and ability, it's painful for the people around them. But when people find that sweet spot where they're gifted, they have a heart, and when they have the ability beautiful things happen like the lady that said, there you are. Yeah, it was beautiful. When we use our gifts for God's purpose. So we've got spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, and finally we have personality. These go back to kind of the test things, right? You've heard of Myers-Briggs where I'm introvert or extrovert, Um, I'm thinking or feeling, all those different kind of things. God's given each of you, each of us, a different personality, sometimes surprises people to find that, you know, as a pastor, I'm standing up front talking to crowds of people that I'm an introvert. But I enjoy being with you all, but it takes extra energy for me to get up and to be, you know, animated and say hello and all those kind of things. But what, what just the way God wired me, it's the alone time, the reflection time that is where I draw energy from. So I'm going to go home this afternoon and collapse. Not because of you, but that's my personality. And so you have a personality. Other people get drained by, be, by sitting by themselves, right? This is so boring. My daughter's that way. She's the exact opposite. She loves action. She loves energy, and she just thrives on it. It's what gets her going. It's her personality. And the, third, the fifth piece that God takes us through, the fifth and final piece of the shape, is the experiences 
God leads us through. Each of us has certain life experiences that we've been through. Good times, bad times, hard times, challenging times, growth times. A few years ago when I decided to step out of ministry, that was a difficult time for me. I'd spent a lot of time, I'd spent a lot of money, I'd spent a lot of energy, a lot of experience becoming a pastor, and now suddenly, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Where am I going to go to church? How do I get a job? You know, my resume says church, 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 church. Is that what employers want today? So I met with a guy who in my church who said, oh, you need to talk to Tim. So I went, called up Tim, and he had me come to his office. Turns out Tim is also a former United Methodist pastor who's now a career counselor. He's got this big office and all these resources and all the companies in Cincinnati, when they downsize or their executives phase out or whatever, they go to Tim to help retool or find the next chapter in their life. Because Tim had been through a difficult transition as well, he was now in the ministry of career counseling. And he shared that ministry with me. He said, Matt, come take advantage of all my services for free. Come to my networking meetings, take my um, resume writing class, meet with a counselor, all these kind of things. Because he had that experience, he shared it with me. You have painful experiences. You have life experiences that you can share with others. I mentioned Rick Warren. He's the one I think came up with this spiritual gifts. You ought to go home and Google him talking about his son's suicide. I think it was on TBN a few years ago. He had a a son that grew up to adulthood throughout his life. He battled with depression and suicide. Um, Rick Warren and his wife Kay prayed that that his son would um, be set free from that, healed, Um, But finally came the day when his son took his own life. And um, Rick says, um, now we have a ministry, worldwide ministry to people struggling with depression and suicide. He said, we didn't ask for that ministry. We didn't want that ministry. But because of our experience, God has opened this new ministry and all kinds of fruit is coming from it. When you discover your shape, when you look at your shape, who you are, the gifts God's given you, and when you start to use those in your life and see how God wants to use those in your life, you start to experience life to the full. Well, the third clue card, if you remember, is the room, right? We've got the, we've got the identity, we've got the weapon or the gifts, and now we've got the room. Where in the world is this thing supposed to happen? I think sometimes we make too big of a deal about um, the, the search for the perfect spouse or the search for the perfect career. I, did, I, I got a master's in counseling and I worked at the college counseling center and I had freshmen come in all the time saying, what should I major in? And I had seniors come in and they'd say, I've majored in this, what should I do now? You know, trying to figure out the perfect next step in their life. I was glad I watched a couple of uh, messages uh, from the church here to get a feel for, you know, how you do things and what's going on. And I heard Pastor Dave and Pastor Seth talking a couple weeks ago about um, when crooked lines lead straight. Sometimes God leads us into strange places or what looks like dead ends and it's hard to see what's next. 
and hard to know what, where God's leading is or what his purpose is in those places we are, I think God brings us where he needs us to be so that we can be the people he wants us to be. God has a purpose for every place he takes us. Life isn't so much about finding the perfect location or taking the perfect next step. It's being who you are, doing what God has called you to do exactly where God has placed you. Pastor and theologian and teacher Dallas Willard observes this. He says, people do all sorts of things. The specific work to be done, whether it's making ax handles or tacos, whether it's selling automobiles or teaching kindergarten, whether it's investment banking or political office, evangelizing or running a Christian education program, performing in the arts or teaching English as a second language, all of it is of central interest to God. He wants it done well. It's work that should be done, and it should be done as if Jesus himself was doing it. In my opinion, Willard says, at least as long as one is on the job, all particularly religious activities, that is, working at a church, teaching Sunday, you know, those kind of things, all of those should take second place to doing the job in sweat, intelligence, and the power of God. And here's his conclusion, that is our devotion to God. That is, we take our discipleship to work with us. If we restrict our discipleship to specific religious times, the majority of our waking hours will be isolated from the presence of the kingdom of God in our lives. When I was in uh, college, my summer job was delivering pizzas at Domino's. I just picked one up the other week and I was chatting with a guy, oh, a lot, you know, not much has changed really. And I, I was recognized as the driver of the week, woo you know, at, the, at our little Domino's store in Ohio. And we had a whiteboard there, and, you know, it said, you know, Matt's the driver of the week, and people could write, you know, joking comments about, you know, well, of course he's the driver of the week, you know, he does this or that kind of thing. Well, on that board, I wrote my life verse. I wrote Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ you serve. Why would a, you know, a 20-year-old kid write that on the board at Domino's? It's because I wanted them to know I wasn't delivering pizzas so I could be the driver of the week, right? I wasn't delivering pizzas so they could write funny comments up there. I was delivering pizzas because I was doing it for Christ. I wanted them to see something of Christ in me, even in the way I delivered pizzas. I think that's what God wants for each of us wherever he's placed you, whatever location you find yourself. The scripture doesn't give us specific guidance like first go here and then go there and so on, go there. But God does give us specific guidance sometimes. He speaks to us through prayer, through the voice of the Holy Spirit, through the voice of Christian friends. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of specific location advice, but it does talk a lot about us being in Christ. Not in the library or the dining room or the living room, but being in Christ. About abiding in him. About clothing ourselves with him. 
You can be in the best circumstances physically and yet miss out on life in the full. Likewise, you can be in the worst circumstances physically and yet still experiencing life to the full. Why is that? Because life to the full happens when we place ourselves in Christ. When you know who you are, when you're doing what God has called called you to do, when you are doing it in Christ, the where becomes less important. You find yourself working less for money and working more for meaning, less for self and more for God. Well, you remember the, the clue game as you're gathering these clues. You've got a person and a, you know, you're turning over cards and you're saying, oh, it's not this person or it's not that person. And as the game comes through, you, you finally make an accusation and go, ah, oh, this is it. The great thing about the life and life in the full is you don't have to wait. You can go for it now and discover as you go. You know, I could stand up here and say, oh, Dave could have said, oh, Matt, could you sing the solo for us at the offering time today? And I, well, I've never done it, but, uh, you know, sure, I'll give it a chance. And we would have all learned quickly, Matt does not have the gift of music, right? You don't have to have it all figured out, though, before you can do something, before you can start experiencing life in the full. It's when you pursue that one thing that you discover that Jesus, what Jesus wants to give that you start to discover the kind of life Jesus was talking about. And it's interesting, each of these things are things you can't go and get for yourself, right? I can't go to Jesus and say, I want to be this. He says, no, you're my beloved. You can't say, like Santa Claus, Jesus, I want this, thing, this gift and this gift and this gift. No, Jesus chooses the gifts he wants to give us because he knows the gifts that will help, help us grow and will help his kingdom grow. And we can't go to Jesus and say, oh, I want it. Well, you can, kind of. And I want to do this and that. But sometimes he has other plans. He directs our paths. Jesus is the one that gives and we, our job is to receive. It's actually interesting, the, the, the verse where Jesus says, I want, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, is, the Greek tense is that they may keep on having life to the full. It's not like you came to church today and you got some life to the full and you're gonna have a great afternoon and sleep it off tonight and back to the same tomorrow. God gives you life to the full that you can have any time, any place, and he wants you to experience it. Let me pray for us, and one of the ways we experience is that when he offers us himself at the table, which we get to share in here in just a moment. So let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for sending Jesus And we thank you that he offers us not just eternal life, but life to the full that we can have now. Thank you that you know us and you love us. Thank you that you give us tremendous gifts. Help us not to be stingy or afraid, but to use them for your glory. And thank you for the places you lead us, even if they seem unexpected 
They don't fit our plans. We know there's no place we can be that's far from you. Thank you for blessing us so richly through Christ. We pray that you would help us to share and meet him as we share in his body and blood now. In Jesus' name, amen.